Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Crew Call. This is Crew Call 3-2, uh, February 2021. Can't believe we're in volume three already, but uh, this is not my first rodeo with uh, podcasts. And um, this uh, Crew Call itself is now in its, uh, in its third season. So uh, just amazing. Anyway, um, I'm, I'm uh, talking with my good friend, Tony Verbilla. 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 And the reason I, the reason my good friend, um, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. He's always been Tony V. And um, there's Tony V Jr. And there's Tony V Sr. And for all I know, there's other Tony V's. But uh, I'm going to say Tony V Sr. is responsible for how nice Tony V Jr. is. How about that? That's, yeah, that's um, very right. All of these, uh, both of these guys have uh, have been to my place and and seen my layout. And uh, 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 Tony is is one of the um, handful of people who has been uh, extremely instrumental and helpful in in getting my uh, getting me prototype information uh, about my modeled area. And um, there's a there's a funny little anecdote as to how I actually uh, uh, met Tony after having met him, but not known. And I'll, I'll explain. Um, there's a prototype modeling meet in, uh, in Malvern. And um, apparently I was doing uh, my clinic there and Tony was in the audience. And I didn't really get a chance to chat with him uh, after the clinic. I don't even know what it was on. Do you remember? Did you do one on a grain elevator? I think it might've been on, on the Albany grain elevator. Oh, right, Greenzilla. Yeah. Absolutely. That, that, that green elevator is not in my layout. It's actually at Matt Herman's house, but that's a whole other story. Mm -hmm. uh, Matt's the, uh, the CEO of, uh, of Loke Sound, and he and I did some, some horse trading when it became apparent that, that, that there's no giant green elevator like that on, on the modeled section of my, of my layout. And I think that was right before I went full prototype. So mm -hmm. that was part of the, you know, the freelance effort that I was doing, and it was based on that, on that Port of Albany uh, Cargill, I think, uh, uh, grain elevator there. So unbeknownst to me, um, I guess you must have been on the podcast group, maybe? I think you, I don't Some know Facebook how I, group, I, right? I, I, it might have be been Facebook, the Conrail yeah. group. Maybe it was the Conrail group. I mean, I'm on so many different railroad related Facebook groups that uh, it's difficult to, uh, to keep track of them, quite frankly. But um, at the time, I guess I was, I was getting ready to model Pittston Yard and I was mentioning that and asking some questions and things. And all of a sudden I get an IM from this guy who says, hey, if you're interested in getting a tour of Pittston Yard, I can arrange that. And I looked at that and I thought, really? <laughs> and, and the rest is history. As it turns out, Tony worked for uh, Reading and Northern uh, at the time. And... Um, was was kind enough to take an entire day and uh, show my a couple of buddies of, of mine, uh, Ken Karlowitz and, and Dave Santos and me around Pittston Yard on what had to be one of the hottest days of the summer. <laughs> it was just like a Batan death march there. But yeah, I have yeah. to say that it was uh, you know, we got great photos and um, uh, a great lunch. We, you know, when you work on the railroad, you don't know when to stop. You know, you just keep going to get the job done. So that's right? why that's why it tends to turn into a death march. <laughs> well, a very can-do kind of kind of death march, you know. And uh, uh, I think that I think the the basis of our friendship was sort of based on that. And fast forward, 
um, after umpteen uh, interactions of getting me information and taking pictures for me and measuring the Pittston Yard office, <laughs> sending that to me. Um, we spent uh, a, another trip down there, a couple of days rail fanning all over the place. We went as far as Hazleton, I think, together, right? Yeah. We did yeah. the industrial parks at, at uh, Mountaintop there. And uh, what was the other one? At... Um, it was Crestwood and it was, um, uh, we did Humboldt. We went to Humboldt. Right. We also went to, um, Valmont, the right. Valmont industrial park. Right. And yeah. I think that might've been the one where I had the world's largest sandwich. <laughs> I still get a picture of that. Remember people were all around the, the restaurant was staring at it. Oh yeah. That was at, uh, Kings and mountaintop. Right. That's where, that's where we went for dinner. Yeah. Kings. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, that's a long and roundabout, um, introduction of how I got to know, uh, uh, Tony V, but, um, uh, a good guy. And, um, and I thought that, uh, I think the thing that blew me away was in spending three days down there all day with Tony, he never ran out of information. He is a true subject matter expert. <laughs> and I, I envy that, that young brain that remembers everything, you know? So while he still remembers it, we got to get more out of him. So we're going to talk to him about uh, half of the information that he has for us today. So welcome aboard here, Tony. Thank you. Thank you. And this is, this is Tony's first podcast. So um, I told him I would, I would be, I would be gentle with him. So, you have been into trains your whole life, I assume, because your dad uh, was into trains. That's 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 right. Yeah, my dad. Same um, with me. He was uh, my dad's a, a lifelong rail fan, and uh, so I just grew up going on rail fan trips with him and uh, a couple of his uh, friends, and uh, and then on top of that, the model railroad in the basement. So um, so yeah, I was always around trains uh, growing uh, what, up. What was the railroad like? The model railroad. Uh, HO, uh, it's an HO layout. Um, it, uh, was it freelance loose, or based on the area? Loosely based on the PRR. My dad's a big Penzi fan. Yep. So, uh, it was a four track mainline, uh, folded wishbone. Okay. So not much operationally, just, you just watch the trains. Kind of, yeah. And, and run them fast. My dad likes to run them fast. <laughs> so we, we he's run a mountain railroader, you know? I, yeah. When the, when the Broadway limited runs, it's probably doing a scale right. 80 mile an hour. <laughs> I, I did, I did several videos of trains on my layout and one of the listeners commented, gee, they're running kind of slow. And, and I, and then I, I, you know, several people chimed in and said, obviously you haven't experienced mountain railroading. This guy actually lives out on, on the Chicago line. So He's used to seeing him, you know, burn along there at seventy miles an hour. Yeah. Not, not in, uh, in, in my modeling uh, area. No. Um, for anybody who maybe, doesn't, maybe uh, you could probably do you could do it uh, west of Pittston. Sure. But certainly not east of Pittston. <laughs> Apparently, back in the LV days, they used to do that quite a bit, didn't they? Yeah. 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 I've, I've read I've read some of the stories. Um, for anybody who who is not aware of what my modeled area is. Um, I basically converted a lot of my layout into the line between Pittston Junction uh, and Sayre. And I've, I've modeled uh, as, as much as possible most of the towns and the little industries along that line. And then I built an addition onto my house <laughs> and expanded the layout to include Pittston and Taylor and Crestwood Mountaintop area. And... Um, it's made, the, it's made the layout a heck of a lot more interesting, 
it, it takes you probably close to half an hour to run from end to end on, on the layout if you don't make any stops. Uh, so you do, you do get that feeling like you're going somewhere, you know. But I found that that greater Pittston area was just a spaghetti bowl, like really, really difficult to understand. And it really took me a long time. It seemed like every time I went down a street, I was crossing three different railroad tracks and there were three different railroads. And then if you take the wrong turn, you'd be crossing those three different railroads in some other order. And I had a, a, the devil of a time figuring it out. <laughs> Spending some time with you, I remember that first day we drove around, I thought, this guy's trying to get us to the point where we couldn't possibly find our way back without his help. <laughs> yeah. we, we ended up down in uh, South Wilkes-Barre. I think that was where we ended for the That's day. That's right. Well, is that wherever the old carbon technologies facility was? No, that's in North Wilkes-Barre. We ended up at the uh, air products facility. In, in oh, that's South right. That's right. Yeah. And also the old, what was that little uh, industrial switcher uh, manufacturer? Vulcan? Vulcan, yeah. We passed Vulcan Ironworks yeah. um, where they uh, manufactured uh, switching locomotives. And then we went about a mile or two past there, um, the air products factory, and then uh, the former PRR Buttonwood Yards. That's where oh, that's started. right. That's right. I don't have a, a, a vivid memory of, of that. Uh, was it just a, a grassy field? Just, uh, yeah, just a whole lot of nothing. <laughs> Maybe that's why. That's, that's exactly my recollection of it. Okay. So, so you're a kid, you're real fanning with your dad. You've got a, a, a racetrack layout downstairs. And at what point did you realize you wanted to work for the railroad? Uh wasn't until later. I mean, I, I think deep down it was always there, but, yeah. um, you know, uh, growing up in the eighties, like any railroader you met said, don't get a job on the railroad. Right. You right. know? And, uh, so you, you kind of had that in the back of your mind that, right. that the professionals said, don't do it. So. They, they still say that, don't they? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I won't deter anyone if that's what they want to do. Right. But, um, it's it's not for everyone but uh did you do it right out of high school no i uh i went to um i went to community college for uh electronics engineering technology okay and i I got a two-year degree on that and then um i got a job at a company that makes like uh electric wheelchairs in their r d department okay um so i uh i used to build a lot of the um test wiring harnesses for a new model and then I'd also run tests. That's kind of interesting, there. actually. Yeah, I mean, it, it was that was fun. I had a lot of freedom there. It's a tinker. Like like me and my dad are big tinkers. We just right. like to tinker. So it was a good job in that sense that I had a lot of freedom to kind of design and uh, do my own thing uh, with different projects. So it sounds like that was a budding career. And then what happened? Uh, well, the railroad, you know, it just, it, you know, it was just, it, I, you know, I just had to do it. Um, so the Reading and Northern wasn't really where I started in the railroad. Um, my actual start in anything railroad related was a few years earlier in um, either 98 or 99 as a car host at Steamtown. Oh, okay. So that, that was really my first taste of any kind of uh, actual scale railroad stuff. Um, How long did you I, do that? About two years. 
And then um, I got out of it because I had to go to community college and um, I was still working the whole time. Right. Uh, I had part-time jobs. And then um, in 2001, I, uh, I was, I think I went to a train show down by Reading, Pennsylvania, and I stopped in Leesport where the Reading uh, Technical Company and Historical Society had their museum set up there. And um, I started talking to some of the people there and they invited me to come down and get my hands dirty, uh, working on the equipment they have there. So, um, so that was the next step. Okay. And, uh, was that still a part-time thing though? No, that was all volunteer. Okay. Uh, that, that was just, I'd go on uh, weekends starting 2001, uh, probably two to three weekends a month. I'd go down there, spend the weekend. They had bunks set up in an old baggage car. Oh, wow. And, uh, I'd spend a lot of time underneath or inside locomotives, uh, uh, like really dirty, like, uh, oh, I'll bet. Uh, getting all the gunk out of a Jeep 35's engine block or um, climbing underneath to do uh, uh, check the brushes on the traction motors or uh, check the main support bearings for the traction motors. Um, that Jeep 35 had, had been sitting a long time. They were trying to get it running and uh, a lot of things had to be uh, gone over before it could be used in service. Do you, do you feel like um, most engineers have this degree of understanding about every aspect of the locomotive, or do you think that experience gave you a much broader uh, insight into how they work? Uh, definitely, I, I say it does. I definitely think that um, the community college, the electronics degree, coupled with um, doing hands-on uh, stuff at the Reading uh, Historical Society on the locomotives definitely gave me a really uh, much more in-depth background into how locomotives work. Right. Um, not only working on them hands-on, but being around people who understood them. Um, certainly, uh, I learned a lot there at Leesport at the, at the Railroad Museum. It had to have come in handy sometimes when you're out on the road and you have an issue. Oh, definitely. It definitely did, yeah. I've, I've... Okay, so we'll get to that. So, <laughs> so you're doing all this volunteer stuff. So how did you end up working for Reading and Northern? Or oh, was that the next step? Well, a lot of, a lot of uh, not a lot, maybe there might have been six or seven guys from the Reading and Northern who um, would volunteer at the Reading Railroad Museum on a semi-regular basis. Was Ed one of them? No, Ed, no, Ed, Ed's, oh. uh, Ed's a Lehigh Valley. He's a Lehigh Valley fan. He, he never oh, volunteered right. at the Reading. <laughs> I was thinking of town for some reason. Because he, um, he did some stuff there, right? He, um, I, I'm not 100% sure. I know he definitely volunteered at the Moscow station. Okay. Um, where the Steamtown trains would go. He, uh, you know, we had like a little gift shop up there. So he, he definitely volunteered up there. Got it. Yeah. But um, so, yeah, I met a lot of guys from the Reading and Northern at the Reading Railroad Museum. And um, when I decided I wanted to apply to the Reading and Northern, I used several of them as references. And, um, and I got hired in uh, March of 2004 as a conductor. Okay, so you started as a conductor, which I guess every engineer does, right? Yep. And how long did you do that? Uh, I was a conductor for a little over a year. I got promoted to engineer in uh, March of 2005. Uh, it was just the timing was right, because uh, not long after I hired there, 
um, a handful of engineers went to Canadian Pacific up in Binghamton. Oh. So there was a, there was a crunch for engineers. So even though I was so new, um, I was quickly, uh, I'd say maybe about four months after I started there, they asked me if, if I wanted to uh, become an engineer. So, so when, you were, when you were a conductor, did you work all over the railroad or just this, uh, the part my, you're familiar uh, with? My first uh, two or three months were working out of Port Clinton and Tamaqua. Um, that's just where they train. I was yep. still training. I was a new conductor. So um, once I trained down there for about two or three months. Was that most then, of the coal uh, trains down there? Did they have all kinds of work? No, it's a little bit of everything. Um, mm -hmm. Believe it or not, I, I hadn't worked like an actual coal train until I, after I became an engineer. Um, but no, it's just a little bit of a uh, little bit of everything down there. Um, the different locals um, that kind of snake and go all over the place down there on the old Redding branches. Um, that's where I trained with uh, a handful of guys down there uh, that were their standard people that they put new conductors with. Was Mike Bednar one of those guys? No, I, I didn't meet. Uh, I didn't work with Mike Bednar until I went up to Pittston. Oh, okay. Uh, on the Lehigh side of the railroad, but um, but yeah, Mike's in that group that would uh, were instrumental in training new people. So, when you became an engineer, was Pittston where you basically started your training? Yeah, yeah, okay. Pittston was. Um, first, I moved up there as a conductor, and. Um, my first regular assignment as a conductor was on the night job, the PILE. Yep. Out of Pittston. Uh, we used to start at seven o'clock at night then. And we go down to Lehighton and then uh, we'd work along the way at different spots and then we'd come back. Well, I think that's what that was the last thing you did too, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I came full circle there. But you did other things in between, like did you ever do the Mahoopany job or anything like yeah. that? Yeah. So, um, yeah, as a new conductor and a new engineer, I mean, I kind of had regular jobs, but uh, they would pull them off. They, they pull me off the regular job a lot to fill in right. as a bottom conductor or a bottom engineer. Um, I was the guy who had to fill in here or there, you know, so. Right. That must have involved yeah, shift did, changing too, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, the way it works, there's the schedule comes out uh, the night before. So it's not like you're really on call there. Uh, you, you have at least usually like eight or 12 hours notice right. where you're going to be the next day. Right. And as a young guy, it doesn't matter. You can do anything. Yeah. And, and you know what? It's uh, really the variety's nice. You know, when you're, you really when learn the railroad around. too, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. To just be qualified everywhere. And, um, and, and that's kind of the way I was the whole time at the Reading and Northern. Um, I, I generally never said no to going anywhere they needed me, you know? Yep. And just, how just, long of a, how long of a training is it before you're able to run trains on your own? Uh, well, it varies. It varies on, uh, on how quick they need engineers and, um, and how you're doing as a trainee. Well, like in your um, case, it took me, I, I think they asked me in July or August of 2004, and then I was promoted in March 2005 to an engineer. Yep. Um, bare minimum, you need 240 hours okay. of, uh, of running time with, another, with a qualified engineer. And then you also need a certain number of hours of classroom time, too. Right. A lot um, of rules. 
a lot of rules um, and just getting the feel of it. I mean, it is really tough. I mean, the first, especially in a mountain. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the first couple of times you, you actually operate the controls when you're coming down there, when you're training, I mean, yeah, you're panicking on the inside. <laughs> I'll bet. Which uh, I imagine it's more the descent than anything else. Right. Oh yeah. 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 yeah anyone could go up a mountain. Yeah. Coming down. I mean, it's uh, it's roughly 20 miles downhill when you leave when you leave Solomon's Gap down to Pittston. Right. So, uh, so yeah, it's it's a pretty long drop. And not every loco had dynamics. No, nope. no, we had uh, we had a lot of engines. Um, the switchers obviously didn't have dynamics. Um, the SD38s didn't have dynamics. Right. And then you never knew when an engine would stop that its dynamics would burn out or or whatever so, really you know, i mean whether uh whether they were equipped or not you always had to know how to get a train down the mountain with just the air uh, right. especially in the fall because in the fall wet leaves uh, yeah those, those leaves i mean you barely get you could barely hold anything in dynamic coming down the mountain so wow. so in the fall like october november you're you're pretty much using all air coming down there were you running some g's at that time too no, the G's, uh, I, I regret that. The G's were gone by the time I got there. I think the G, the last G's would, were the uh, uh, the B23-7s, 2300 and 2301. I believe they were retired in early 2003. So you missed that. So it was, it was for road power, it was just the ones you listed, some SD40s, right? Yeah, yeah. When I, when I hired there, uh, it was uh, SD40-2s, SD50s. Yep. SD38s and then a handful of switchers. Yeah. And uh, when you guys would do like, um, let's see. So the RAM job, for example, right? The, the, um, and I should point out that I, I got to ride the, uh, the Mahoopany switcher one day, courtesy Tony V. So thank you again for that. Cause that was like on my, uh, on my personal bucket list to do something like that. It's been a whole day just, riding out with the guys on a perfect October uh, day. And I just thought, boy, you get used to this, but it's not always like that, of course, weather-wise. No. <laughs> on a perfect day, there's nothing better, boy. But um, I guess, I don't know if this was true when you, when you were working at, but I guess in the, in like in my era, early, early 80s era, um, the Mahoopany switcher would run up and, and do things at, at Ransom and not be involved at Mahoopany. How was it when you were doing it? Uh, when I was there, yeah, the, uh, the Mahoopany job, which is uh, officially the PIME, uh, Pittston Mahoopany in return. Mm -hmm. um, they'd start out at Pittston. Uh, when I hired, it was six in the morning. And eventually, I think it's eight in the morning now. And uh, yeah, they pretty much, uh, their cars were pretty much set up for them by... Uh, by uh, the Scranton job would usually set the cars up. So you pretty much hooked on and went. Right. You'd stop That's what we did. Yeah, you, we'd stop and ransom at the Cascade Tissue. We'd work Cascade Tissue. And then we'd continue on up to Mahoopany. And we'd, we'd take the empty that we pulled out of Cascade, take it up to Mahoopany. And then uh, uh, we'd go and ship the Procter & Gamble plant at Mahoopany and then just come back. Now, were and, they doing? Were they bringing salt uh, down at that time? Like yeah, now? yeah. Uh, the salt was seasonal um, okay. for the most part. Yeah, um, that yeah, was NS at that time, right? It was NS at that time. Yeah, yeah. We used to interchange with NS up there, and uh, 
and actually, uh, yeah, they'd, uh, sometimes they'd have power sitting over there and that was always kind of a fun thing because if there was no crews around, <laughs> we always used to go inspect their powers and, uh, you know, I, maybe we borrowed them, maybe we did it occasionally. <laughs> was it bit dash nines probably? Dash nines, yeah. yeah. Um, C39-8 would occasionally, um, occasionally some four axles, yeah. Wow. Wow. I was very surprised to see that, that Corman bought Lehigh. I would have thought RNN would have gobbled that right up. Yeah. I mean, it would have been a natural extension. Um, uh, I, I guess Corman was just the highest bidder. I, I haven't really followed along to see if there was any other companies that tried bidding on it. Um, but uh, Corman seems to be pretty aggressive just from what I'm seeing. Right. Uh, they've already... Um, done some major brush cutting on the on the lines up there and uh they're putting quite a bit of money in the motive power too so it's uh yeah i thought i read that they were they were service you know putting them all in for major service all the engines that they got from lehigh and consequently some of the uh corman lighted engines are were doing some work on the line right mm -hmm. yeah interesting interesting so so what was it like to be in the cab with uh, with Mike Bednar. Was he a good instructor? It, it was a blast. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. He's uh, a really good in instructor. Um, I'll pull up some pictures. Uh, Encyclopedic knowledge too. Oh my God! Yeah, you just you learn so much about everything in life. Right. Uh, I mean, the railroad, train handling, and just life in general. Food. Uh, Oh, food. Yeah, definitely. Where to stop for food. Right. Um, but uh, all of his articles are like that. You know, I mean, I, I read his his column in TRP all the time. And and uh, I've got, you know, his videos and his books and what have you. And um, yeah, he, so useful to me. He, he really was great to work with. I, I mean, he's uh, like everyone's favorite uncle. Right. Um, well, when I know, met him at the slideshow there at, in, at uh, the hose company, um, I, I was almost uh, uh, intimidated to go up and talk to him because he attracts people around him like like flies on honey. I mean, it's it's he's a rock star. He, they, yeah, yeah, they just swarm around him. You know what I mean? I felt like a groupie. <laughs> yeah, but he was very forthcoming. So you got some good good pictures for us here. Let's yeah let's, uh, yeah I, I could share some. Pop um, them up. Let's see what what we have here. Let's see if I can figure out how to do this. Um, let's see. You gotta you gotta enable the screen sharing oh i did it for the test one but not for for this one okay let's see uh, all participants multiple okay that should work okay here we go so wow yeah, there he is i i think that's the first time i actually met him um i was rail fanning the pile uh in 2002 or 2001 and um they so this were is the pittston office this is the pittston office which was formerly uh coxton tower right um, but this is the pittston crew room and um you know and i very shyly knocked on the door and asked if i could take photos and and i got the full invitation come on in take as many photos as you want yeah and uh and that's a photo of him on the phone uh chromer camp oh yeah always oh, at his fuses on. on the table next to the uh random piece of pizza that yeah. that just you know <laughs> it really sums it up doesn't it 
Yeah, on the left, that's Jimmy Cook. He's still an engineer wow. uh, at the Reading and Northern. He was actually my first regular engineer. And then um, on that night PILE job many, many years ago, yeah. the guy on the right is Jason Andrews. Uh, he, he, he's an engineer at Norfolk Southern now. Ah. So um, let's see if I could share some more. I can remember how to do this. There he is again. Um, that's on uh, uh, the 7525, which was uh, an SD45 R or R from the Southern Pacific. So had that uh, been um, had that already been refurbed at Mountaintop? No, this this. So was, that's not uh, an M dash two. No, it's not an MK rebuild. It still had the 20 cylinders in it. Uh, wow. It was actually bought for parts, um, but when they when they started looking under the hood, they said, this thing's in really good shape. Let's try putting it in service. Probably has a couple of miles on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And uh, well, they actually got another uh, four years out of it. Um, uh, four years of reliable service. It was, uh, it was one did of- Did they ever uh, paint it? They actually did. Yeah. It became the 3200. Wow. And, uh, and, and everyone says that's, that was the kiss of death when they painted it. <laughs> Uh, because it wasn't long after that that its turbo went, and then then it it was just sidelined after that. Right. So um, that's this <laughs> is February two thousand five. That's me on the left, and that's Big a classic Mike. photo. And then uh, Ryan Lamb, who was in my engineers class too, and then uh, the guy on the right was a cab rider we had that day, and um, and this is us getting ready to leave Pittston to go to Lehighton on the. Yeah, it looks like you're right on the mountain cutoff there, right? Yep. Yeah, and this was um, uh, this was actually the day that uh, Ryan Lamb was uh, above me in seniority. So this was actually the day he got signed off as an engineer. Ah. So then um, once he got signed off, I was able to get all the training time with Big Mike after that. Before gotcha. that, we had to split it up. Yep. So um, uh, th this is another, this is just in the group of photos that I had. Uh, just another one of my influences. This is uh, L.V. Lester Rockefeller. Um, he was very involved with the Black River and Western, um, but that's not how I met him. I actually met him rail fanning along the D&H where he just happened to have a house and I, I happened to be trackside and started talking to him. But um, yeah, this is another guy who was just a plethora of railroad knowledge. Oh, I'll bet. Where is this photo taken? Uh, Harris Tower. In Harrisburg. Yep. Wow. Uh, so, so yeah, he, he was another one of my early influences, along with, um, I'm still going to uh, pull up another photo or two here. Sure. Uh, let's see. And then um, this is uh, Jeff Seidel here. And uh, uh, this is another one of the legendary guys of the Reading and Northern. Big Mike was one of them. Yep. And, uh, Jeff Seidel was another one. This must be Port Clinton, right? This is Port Clinton. Yeah. His um, he was uh, in charge of the signal department. Uh, but he had a, uh, as uh, his background in railroading, uh, pretty much paralleled Big Mike's from when he was a little kid. Really. Hiring on the railroad very early. Um, he hired on Conrail in 1977. 
then quickly rose through the ranks to a road foreman, and then went to Conway in their engineer training program. So at the Reading and Northern, even though he was the head of the signal department, he was still very much involved with uh, training engineers mm-hmm. and, uh, and just kind of overseeing uh, the training process. Would he ever fill in occasionally in a pinch? Yeah. Yeah, he, he did. Yeah, he uh, you'd still see him out running trains every now and then. Uh, uh, but he was another uh, another one that um, anytime you were around him, you just soaked up the knowledge. And uh, much like Big Mike, he was a great storyteller, and you'd always be laughing when you were around him. Hmm. So um, uh, unfortunately, he he passed away in 2015 from uh, ALS. Oh boy. And um, they uh, the railroad named an interlocking. Uh, at um, on Conrail, it was called Hendler's, but when they put the interlocking in, they renamed it Seidel after him. Hmm. And also, if you see any of the the Jeep thirties on the Reading and Northern, they all have a dedication to Jeff Seidel on the battery boxes too. Wow, he's definitely a, another uh, big influence in, in my railroad career. Um, here's another shot of Big Mike. Um, the slideshows that that you attended. Uh, this was at one probably about six or seven years ago. And uh, the guy on the left is uh, John Pachulis of JP Media, who does the, oh, he does the I, DVD. I bought a number of his, uh, his uh, videos. Yep. And then uh, the guy in the middle is um, uh, Big Mike's younger brother, Keith. Oh. And then Big Mike. And, and what's going on here is uh, John Pachulis built this model of a C420 uh, and is dedicating it to Big Mike and giving it to him as a gift. Wow. For all of his help with the DVDs and the narration that he does on those DVDs. So um, that's impressive. Yeah, really fun um, uh, dedication we had at one of our slideshows to Big Mike. Very nice. Yep. Um, This is another very influential guy on the Reading and Northern. This is John Hartman. Long-time railroader. He worked out on the, uh, uh, the Allegheny Railroad, which went out to Erie. Wow. Uh, and worked for, uh, uh, I think he might have worked for another railroad somewhere in there. But he's another long-time guy that uh, is very involved with the training of a lot of, our, uh, a lot of the engineers at the Reading and Northern, too. This looks like an SD-50 in motion. It is, yeah. It's a... Uh, it's, uh, He's actually on the second unit of four on a, a solid train of wine going up to Pittston. Wow. And, uh, the reason he's in the second unit is because the owner uh, of the Reading and Northern, Andy Moeller, is, is running the train. Um, Andy Moeller, you know, he built the Reading and Northern and had the vision to uh, breathe life in all these rail lines that Conrail would have otherwise just abandoned oh absolutely and even after all that uh he still likes to get out and run the trains every now and then so uh uh when i was there anytime there was a big uh some sometimes when a big cut of cars for pittston came into reading rather than have them come up on the pile and uh and the nrff they would run a solid unit train from reading up to pittston and, and usually what yeah. happened andy moeller would like to take run that train himself Wow. See, that's, that's the way it ought to be. The, the, the head of a railroad ought to know how to run a train. 
Yeah. If all, if all railroads were, were in charge, of, you know, by people like that, instead of, you know, hedge funds, it'd be a little different, I think. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he, he definitely gets out, runs the trains and gets a feel for how the railroad's riding and how, uh, how all the track work is and, and everything. So hands on, you got to admire that. Yep. Yeah. So those are, um, those are some of the photos of the uh, people involved in the, uh, the training at the Reading and Northern. So, you know, when, when I was asking you questions, it's obvious that of course, you know what you're talking about from your, your railroad career, but you had very, very deep and, and broad historical knowledge. Is that, is that stuff that you got from these guys as well? Or did you already bring some of that with you when you started there? I, uh, I brought some of that with me, um, you know, from being hands-on at the museum uh, and uh, working around guys there who knew what was going on. So the hands-on aspect, you know, I, I learned a little bit about locomotives there. But also, um, uh, I, I hated reading in school. When I was in school, I hated reading. But um, when I left school, I, I I really started loving to read. So um, maybe it was what they were having you read. <laughs> I, I it could be, yeah. So so uh, the one thing I remember is I read modern freight train handling before I actually hired at the Reading and Northern. Okay. So just having that background from reading that book before I even hired out the railroad, you know, it, it kind of set me up for or a, a good base knowledge for when I actually started training to be an engineer. Um, huh. that, How did you even know about it? I don't remember. I think I might have, I saw it on a table at a train show, I think. Um, but another thing too with Jeff Seidel, uh, Jeff Seidel was one of the guys who used to come to the Reading Railroad Museum. And, uh, and like I say, he, he knew just so much information. It would just blow your mind about everything, railroad signals, locomotives, train handling. Um, so being a young kid wanting to know about railroads, you know, you'd, I would ask him a lot of questions. And, and you could kind of tell he was getting agitated because I, I didn't have the, back, the, the base knowledge to understand right. his answers. Right. And that, it, it kind of clicked that, you know, I should start reading books on this stuff. Sure. If I, and that way I could also ask the questions more intelligently and understand what he was giving back to me. Well, so you can imagine my dilemma when I first started asking you questions, you could kind of tell, I didn't know one end from the other. Well, I, I mean, that's different. That's rail fanning. I mean, that's, I guess, Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I'm trying to recreate that whole environment there, obviously not the whole environment, but you know what I mean? I was modeling that area. When, when you're trying to when you're trying to understand how a load regulator works on a GP7, I mean, I can't, you, you kind of have to have some of the base background uh, terminology involved right, there. Right. No, it is it is a it is a level thing. I I had I had the pleasure of running um, a locomotive one time out in Portola, California. They had this program where you could, by the hour, run uh, an engine. And, you know, they had a nice little run that you could do and, and make a move at the end and then, and then come back. And it was this high hood uh, Fairbanks Morris uh, switcher. Wow. Tab switcher. So um, everything about this was new and, and intimidating to me, you know, but I was kind of stoked. Um, when I went to this museum, I had tried and tried and tried to book an appointment to do just that on, on my trip. 
but you know how it is on a trip. You have like a certain amount of time when you're in one spot and then you're on the, then you keep moving, you know, I never really was able to, to, to lock in the appointment. I think they were booked way ahead too, probably. So I went to the, I went to the place anyway, they had equipment all over the place. And the guy said, you can go anywhere you want out there. You can climb on equipment. You can go in the cabs. Don't get hurt. Mm -hmm. I said, really? He said, yep. So, I mean, I was having a ball and I was out there for about 15 minutes and I was in the cab of a, I think a U 25 B. And, um, I see this guy come, you know, the same guy comes, you know, trudging purposefully down the, down the, uh, the path and he's going like this. And I'm thinking, Oh boy, I misunderstood. I'm in trouble. And when he got closer to me, I leaned my head out the window, you know, the window of the cab. I said, is there a problem? And, uh, and he said, I'm not going to disappoint you. There was somebody that was supposed to be here at a certain amount of time. It's been 15 minutes and he's not here. So if you want to run an engine, you can do it if you come right now. I said, okay. Mm -hmm. So we, you know, we climb into the thing and he takes 10 minutes and explains the whole thing to me. And he says, okay, hop on. And I said, you're going to be here, right? Because <laughs> I didn't memorize everything you just told me. And he says, yes, just, just get in the seat. And, you know, and he talked me through it. And I mean, it's not terribly complicated if you're just running a, you know, a, a, mm -hmm. an engine. Um, but it was the first time I had driven something that you didn't have to steer, which was interesting. Uh -huh. And um, I was astonished that on an end cab switcher like that, looking down the high hood, I had perfect visibility. You almost couldn't mm -hmm. see the hood. I really I didn't expect that. I was I was thinking, how do they see out of these things? But it was really no problem. So that's the only experience I've, I've ever had running a locomotive. But as you know, it's what's behind it that kind of makes uh, separates an engineer from just somebody, you know, running something right. Yeah. Training yeah, run, running, running light engine or a set of power, uh, you know, isn't isn't that hard, but yeah, when you're when you're actually have a train hooked up to you, yeah, it starts. It gets real, real fast. <laughs> well, it's interesting that um, you you've rail fanned out out west, I know, and and you know where Katie's is, right? Yeah, love it out there. Out yeah. on the transcon. I mean, it's 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 stupendous out there. And I was out there once with my son. He must have been about twelve or thirteen, and um, the uh, Santa Fe engineer on the Barstow local called us over. And I thought, oh boy. And he says, hey, you wanna come up in the cab? And we said, sure. So we go up in the cab, we start talking to the guy, nice guy. He, he had seniority, uh, so he was able to do this. I guess it's a pretty nice gig doing the Barstow local because you go out and back, you know where you're gonna be. You know, it's like a, a predictable uh, job. You're not staying in your home every night kind of deal. Um, and he, I think he had four dash nines on the local, local power. um, and, um, and then the radio crackled and, and he said, hang on a sec, I got to make a move. And he, and he throttled up these dash nines and he's back in the train up and you could just feel the massive weight of the train, which is nothing to you because you've done it before, but it was, I just looked at my son and he looked at me and we both said, wow, yeah. you know, I, one of my regrets was not taking you up on, on the, uh, the night job ride over the mountain. You know, that was probably a, in retrospect, a real missed opportunity. Cause I'll bet that would have been great. Although it would have been better during the day. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I'll, I'll see you. you know, maybe someday I, I can still hook you up. I'll, I'll have to talk to some people, though. <laughs> I'm not getting any younger, so, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, you should, it's, it, it really uh, – uh, it really was a great experience. I, I, I mean, it was, it was tough, especially overnight, you know, because we um, – at the end there, we were starting 10 o'clock at night. Right. Finishing up uh, 8, 9, 10 in the morning. So um, – I did that. I did that for seven years. That overnight job, and uh, and yeah, I mean, it, it was really great. Uh, but just kind of affects your social life a little bit. Um, it, it it really didn't affect my social life. I mean, you know, because on my days off, you know, I, you know, I still see people on my days off, and yeah, and and I I kind of actually liked it better uh, because. I could go up to my parents during the day and see them during the day. And um, when would you sleep? Well, I, I'd sleep in the morning when I'd get home. Um, uh, you know, first thing I do, you know, get home, get a glass of water, and then just climb into bed and sleep for usually about five or six hours and then just get up and go about my day. And then, right. uh, and then I would just go to work at night. Uh, yeah. I mean, that, you, that's, it, it, that's it, enough, particularly when you're young. Yeah. Yeah, it was four days a week. Yeah, it was um, Sunday through Wednesday I did it. So and uh, and that that equated to about like forty five hours a week, um, you know, with just how long the days were. They were usually ten to twelve hour days. Right, right. Um, but uh, but yeah, the, the the worst part about it was just being tired and staying awake. That that was the tough part. Uh, right. Not not the social aspect of it. That never bothered me. Right just uh so just, you were only with rnn for seven years is that what you're saying no uh, 15 and a half years at the Reading. And okay Northern. so at some point you, you got off of that particular trick and yeah yeah so, yeah so we'll go back to when i became an engineer um i uh i was promoted in march 2005 and then um i was just extra list for a few months and then there was uh an opening on the Scranton job and nobody wanted it. Even though it had Friday and Saturday off, nobody wanted it because it was such a pounder, that job. Uh, so I was forced to sign on it. And I You're was talking like, about the one that, that would go up Taylor secondary and okay. Yeah. That, nobody that job was, is it because of the industrial park or because of the Chamberlain run? Were they still making that run at that time? No, no, we didn't go. Uh, we didn't go out to uh, Chamberlain at that point. We were just going up to the Kaiser Valley. Okay. Uh, but yeah, that was, that was, uh, that was a tough job when I was on it. It, it was a real pounder, um, every day, you know, or at least most days. So when no, you, say uh, pounder, so you mean there was a lot of work to do on the job work to do every day. Yeah. Like, uh, uh, usual day was you'd wait for the, for the road trade to come in and then whatever freight they came in, uh, that what, that's what you did first was you broke apart the, the freight that would come in for the day. You'd sort it out. Uh, you set it up for wherever it was going, like the P&G cars, we'd set them up in a block and shove them up to Falling Springs. So that way, that way the PIME could just grab them and go. So, uh, so yeah, the first, first thing. It's all pulp basically, right? Yep. But every day, did RNN have their own boxcars at that time? No, that didn't, uh, they didn't get the boxcars, I think, till like 2014. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, that inbound freight was always jumbled. So, you know, you, you might spend two or three hours sorting that stuff out first. No, no pre-blocking. Uh, if, if the road crew was nice, 
they might put the PNGs head out for you. Yep. And yep. then they they themselves might take the PNGs up the following springs. So would uh, you would you would you try to sort in Pittston uh, the cars that you were bringing up to Kaiser Valley to make it easier once you got there? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, what, once we uh, once we split everything apart, um, then we'd start building our train to go to Scranton. Okay. And uh, that would usually have to be set up in a certain order, depending on what the day's work was. You still with me? Because you're visually locked up. Uh-oh. On the way out. Hey, Tony. And, um, Tony. Yeah. You, you actually yep. locked up for a minute? So you're back. Oh. So I'm going to want you to just verbally go back a little okay. bit. Um, so you, okay. the last thing I heard was you're, you, you're going to sort your cars to bring up this grant in a particular order. Yep. And that order yeah, that, is based on whether it's a, a facing point or trailing point in the order you encounter the industry or like, was there more to it? The order was usually based on the work, uh, what customers we had that day. I see. Um, you don't switch every customer every day. No, there was a lot of strategy going that, that we put into it uh, just because when you got to the end of the line, uh, you only had a 10 car run around and um, depending, uh, there was two customers, Poly High and uh, Azek were at the end of a double switchback. Yeah, right. Azek was the one with the <laughs> diagonal track across the road. Yep. And, uh, and there was a short tail track that could only accommodate an engine and five cars. This is so, very interesting to me because getting ready to build that and getting ready yeah. to build Kaiser Valley. And it, it only barely accommodated an engine and five cars. I'd, I'd usually have the conductor bump the wheels of the car right up to the stop. Wow. And then I'd have, I'd have to get off the engine to check to make sure the engine's wheels cleared the points. That's how close it was. And if it didn't, then what? Well, then we had to go and set a car back over on the, on the, on the running track and then come back over. But usually we did, there, there was one series of cars. I think they were, I think they were PLWX or PLCX ribside covered hoppers that were longer than the other ones. The low so if size. Bunch, if, yeah, if we had a bunch of them, we, we, we really had to squeeze them in there. But yeah, so there, let, there, let me ask you this. Um, as, as I recall, and correct me if I'm wrong, to do ASIC, you're coming in, Poly High is on your right, mm -hmm. and Azex on your left across the street. Yeah. So you so, have to go, so it's a trailing points crossover, right? To switch to, to get over there. So you're saying yeah. you want to go past that switch and you've got the cars behind you. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so the these first, are loads. So the first switchback was only good for an engine and five cars, but you couldn't fit that engine and five cars between the switch for ASIC and, and the poly high cars that were in front of you. Okay. So it, it would only save you that move at the first switchback, but at the second switchback, you had to cut a car or two off to get them in ASIC there. So you push your loads across the street mm -hmm. and was that the only track? I mean, in other words, this track only went to ASEC or did it also go to some other industry? Um, it, it, 
well, to, once you got across the street, it was only Azek. Okay. Uh, pla plastic pellets in, and there was a handful of lumber cars they loaded there outbound. Uh, really? But for the, yeah, there were maybe a dozen or so when I was there. So when uh, you went into Azek, was it was it a single track or two tracks? Four. There was four tracks. Four tracks. In there. Okay. So yeah, you they, had they a usually, place to put the loads and pull the empties out and rearrange. Yep. All, all in that very limited space there. And like I said, uh, when you pull out of there, when you were shifting there, you had to be mindful because you had Poly High right in front of you and you didn't want to run into their cars. Right. So you, you would have to, in some cases, uh, make multiple pulls out of there, right? I, I think uh, the first switchback, because like I said, you had to go through the first switchback to get to Poly High yep. and the second switchback to get over to Azek. And I think the first switchback, the most number of times I went through it in one day was 10 times. I mean, just, you know, if it that kind of 10 times, yeah. Wow. So yeah, how many cars would you bring down there uh, to go that, through 10 times? That might have been like a seven or eight car Azek shift. And yeah. then Polly High might have got five cars that day. So it was. Just, Which didn't happen all the time. No, no, but it, it, it did occasionally happen. And that's why I say, we really tried to plan out our moves at the beginning of the day. So that way, when we did get up there, everything would kind of fall into line. And, and, and that, that's the kind of stuff we were thinking about at the beginning a, of the it's day. It's a chess match. It was a chess match, yeah. So uh, I, obviously, you know what you're going out there with. Do you know what you're picking up before you go? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, we pretty much... Um, we had the end. We are. We already knew how many cars were going to be coming out. Yep. Um, and and that would lead to some problems too, because like I said, the runaround out there is only ten cars. Was only ten cars. They've lengthened it to twenty five cars now. Right. Um, the tail track on the runaround was only good for three cars. So I mean, you could do a double runaround, but you had nowhere to go with those other cars. So you had to go. You had to you know, come up with some kind of crazy game plan to get by. Right. And we only ever, we only ever had one engine uh, at the time. At the time we, they weren't giving us two engines to go out there. Well, would um, you have a hard time making it up to Taylor secondary sometimes because it was the one engine? Uh, no, I, I knew what all the engines were capable of. Um, you know, when, in a way, I mean, that was one good thing that came out of only ha ever having one engine was I could compare engines I, I knew how the engines compared to each other. Yeah. Because I always had one and, you know, one day I have 30 cars with an SD50 and then another day I have 30 cars with an SD40. And there's no doubt the SD50 will outpull the SD40. I mean. Interesting. Um, yeah. So, so I was really good at, you know, figuring out what the engines would do out there uh, tonnage wise. Were, were the GP30s there when you were there? Um, yeah, but, uh, I never used them out on the Scranton job. I, okay. I, I was off the Scranton job by the time the Jeep 30s I'm came. I'm just wondering how, you know, two Jeep 30s would have compared to one SD40-2. Uh, they, they probably, they probably, I'll, I'll, I'm sure they'd outpull one SD40. Really? Um, yeah, with, uh, what, what I could tell you is like with 30 loads in an SD40, um, right by Kane Warehouse there. Uh, with 30 loads, you'd be down to about four or five mile an hour with an SD40. Uh, with an SD50 and 35 loads, I was still doing eight mile an hour. So, I mean, the SD50s are just, there's, you know, they're just beasts. They're stronger engines. But you're in uh, run eight to do that, obviously, right? Yeah. 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 
So it's a good, it's a good, uh, it's a good show. Yeah, the the ST thirty eight, you could get about twenty five loads out there. You know, be reasonably certain that you'd make it. You know, interesting, interesting. So, a couple more questions about that. Then, um, in my era, I'm going by memory here. I probably should have studied up on this, but I, I wasn't thinking that we were going to be talking so much about Kaiser Valley. But uh, I've gotten some of this information too from Ron Papierkevich. Did you get a chance to listen to his podcast that he did with me? I did, yeah. Yeah, yeah really he, he's, yep. you know, uh, thank you for introducing me to him. Super nice guy and also very helpful and, and, and forthcoming. Um, he was describing to me that I think it's the Azek siding. You go over a, a culvert, there's a stream on the other side of the road. Yeah, there's a culvert there. Yeah. What kind of a bridge is that? Is it just a pipe or is it uh just a pipe? Yeah. Uh it's funny. Yeah, there used to be like a I think it was a beaver used to live in there. I used to see it a lot when I'd be shifting Azac. Or Do they uh, make an HO scale uh, beaver. I'll have to look into that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's funny. Uh, we used to see it there all the time and I, I'd be talking to the workers there and we'd laugh because like this beaver, you know, there's probably I'm sure there's runoff from this plastic. <laughs> And the beavers living in the water. There was some other. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I was going to say, if that's the culvert he's talking about, because there's a bunch of them out, out in that back valley. There's one okay. at Kane 5. There's one, there's one by Kane 3. Um, so, yeah, I'm not 100% sure which one he's talking about. But, okay. yeah, there, there used to be animals living there at Azek. <laughs> There, there was another uh, business down there. There was some kind of, I, don't, I think it was a food warehousing or something like that. Did, did, was that still there when you were doing it? No, that, um, I just missed that. Yeah, there was, uh, was it grass refrigeration maybe? Sounds I, I, right. Yeah, that yeah. sounds right. Yeah, they used to get the re, uh, reefers in there. Yeah. Right. I, right. I, I, re I remember seeing them on the PILE when they were handling them, but. Yeah, so when, it, uh, they went all truck or did they maybe they went out of business? Truck. Okay. I, I think they went truck. Yep. And then Ron was telling me that back in my era, that there was a coal load out that was accessed from Kaiser Valley. Yep. You know anything that, about that? Yeah. The track was still in um, when I was working out in the back Valley. I couldn't tell you um, anything about Conrail servicing it. I just, I just don't know about Conrail in the back Valley, how they operated it. Right, um, but the, I guess the there. I guess the coal trucks wouldn't have gone through the industrial park roads per se. They would have come in some other way. Do you know anything? Yeah, they would have came in. They would have came in from the Scranton side of the tracks. Exactly. You don't have any pictures of the loadout by any chance? No. Nah. I mean, it's nah. long gone. I imagine, right? Yeah, I, I, it's it, it's yeah, all those things that you think you should have taken photos of. Yeah, that's one of them. Right, yeah. right. He kind well, of it, described it, it to me. It wasn't anything fancy though. It was just like ties stacked up and filled in with filled in with shale and comb. That's yep. all it was. And um, would the trucks do you think have just backed up and dumped into the cars? I've also seen pictures of it where they have a loader there. The trucks dump it in a pile and then the loader loads the cars. Yeah, I mean, it, it could have gone either way. I mean, I, I think there's examples of both in the coal region, but yeah, I just couldn't tell you. Yep. Okay. Um, and before I forget, I have one other not related question, but pretty specific. 
Um, did you see the pictures of my sand tower and sand house that I'm constructing? For yeah, it's, be it's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, I'm really happy with the way the sand tower came out. Um, and the sand bin, I think, looks about right to me. And I need to build the roof. Now, the uh -huh. pictures that I have are sort of, you know, iffy. They were, they were good enough that I could, I could see how the bin was and get the relationships and all of that, the proportions right. But I'm not really certain how that bin got loaded. Uh, if I look at that bin a certain way, it looks like there are roof hatches. And yet, how would it have gotten from a covered hopper into the roof of that? You know what I mean? So I'm assuming that the hopper, the covered hopper with sand, must have dumped into a little pit there. Well, um, or was it pneumatic somehow? When, it couldn't have been with sand. When you look at photos, uh, a lot, I mean, I'm not 100% 100 sure on this, but when you look at photos of that service facility, at least in the later Conrail days, there's always there's always an ex-Penzi boxcar there. Yes. And I and I think they might- An X-58, isn't it? Yeah, there's always, there's usually one spotted right by the sand tower there. And I think they might have, Use like vacuum lines or something to pull it out of out of the box car. I'm not 100 percent sure. I don't I don't know. I've never seen a photo of a covered hopper next to it, so that's why I kind of think they might have brought it in in those box cars, like um, in bags. Maybe I don't know. I just well, I mean, know. maybe in maybe in <laughs> Conrail days, right? But that certainly couldn't have been what Lehigh Valley was doing. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I know the. Uh, you know, like the sand tower itself to get the sand up to the top of the sand tower. I think that's all done with vacuums. Well, sure. You've so, got the mean, little, little cement block building there. I assume the, oh. the compressors and everything are in that little cement block building. Yeah, I believe so. Uh, yeah, the cement block was, well, that was the oil pump. I mean, there was oil pumps in there. Uh, I'm not sure if the compressor was well, in there. Well, there's two different, two different cement block buildings. So the big one is the, is the fuel related one. But I'm talking about the yeah. really small one right next to the sand bunker. Yeah, I was never inside that, but I would assume that that probably had an air compressor in it for the. Uh, so you never bunker. saw anything resembling a pit or anything in the rails there next to the sand no. thing. No, I still don't have a good sense of how they get sand into a sand bunker. Okay. Yeah, that's that's a that's a really good question. Yeah, I mean, well, I've, you, I've never I've never got some good that. pictures there of of this area. Well, you want to pop them up and and we can show people. You know what we're yeah. talking about here. Yeah, I'll, um, a lot of my good pictures came from you. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, let's see if I could. Uh... Okay, so how, how, uh... exactly. Okay, yeah, this is one of my modeling pictures there. So absolutely. Yeah, that, that's uh, December of 1994. Um, Chris, it was actually Christmas Day of '94. Oh wow. Um, yeah, we were going to my grandmother's for uh, dinner and, and we swung by the, uh, the yard. So if you look at that sand uh, bunker, mm -hmm. I can't tell what's going on with the roof of that thing. <laughs> it, looks like it, it looks like it's falling into me. I mean. <laughs> well, exactly. Or, or so you think it's just a roof and um, like a tire paper roof or something. And, and it's not like there's roof hatches there per se. I think... Yeah, I think it's just a wood with, let's see. Uh, did that zoom in for you too? Yeah, actually that looks pretty good. Um, so yeah, it does look like, like one of the, but it looks almost like, like look at the left-hand side there. Doesn't that look like a hatch? 
Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it might be. I mean, it looks like a series of hatches with one cover missing. Uh-huh. Yeah, it, it definitely could be. I don't know if I'm talking you into it, but that's kind of, that's it's what I get out of it. But I, I mean, I, I don't know how they would, what they'd use to get the sand. You know, I guess maybe they could have pumped it out of a car into there somehow. Um, yeah, I don't know. Interesting. All right, keep going. Okay, let's see. It's a great shot. Yeah, that, that was one of my dad's shots. My dad took these shots. So that, um, so that building on the right, is that the fuel... Uh, Cement block building? Yeah, that, that would have been fuel and um, uh, lube oil. Uh, I think when the Reading and Northern took over, I think they were, I think the pumps still were. Um, well, that building wasn't there when I had the yard tour, was it? No, no, it would have been, it would have been bulldozed by then. Right, right. Yeah, originally, uh, the service tracks, uh, when, when frack sand became big down here, uh, originally, they were planned to use the service tracks as the transload, but um, they realized that it, it didn't, the tracks didn't have the car capacity for the amount of sand they'd be moving. Right. So that's when they, uh, that's when they moved it up to the pit end of the yard right. on uh, some of the old OX tracks. Now, so, you see that telephone pole there with the three vertical things coming out of it? Yeah, it looks like vents. Uh, those three vertical things kind of look like vents. So is that not a telephone pole? I I, I really don't know. I mean, uh, that's roughly where the uh, where the fuel tank used to be, uh, right about somewhere. Oh, in that so area. that could just be a pipe. Yeah, it might be a vent for the fuel tank, maybe. Uh, yeah, because I don't I don't know what those three things on top would be. Interesting, interesting. And of course, the uh, the light towers. Did you did you get a chance to see the uh, completed light towers uh, in action? The photos I posted. I don't think I saw that yet. Yeah, no. I, I built four Alchem light towers and, and uh, fully lit them up with uh, with LEDs. And I've got two at Taylor and and two at Pittston. So. Oh, I did. I, I saw the Taylor ones. The Taylor. Yeah, ones yeah. The Pittston ones are the same thing, just different color. Yeah. Yeah. So um. So yeah, that's uh. The, the, the cars in the background too, those are all loads of salt out of, uh, um, out of the Finger Lakes region. Right. Um, that's, that was a big commodity in the fall that, you know, at least in the nineties, you always saw a lot of salt moving through there. Now, was there a big uh, pile of salt at Pittston in these days? I don't remember. Yeah, I don't remember if the salt transload was there during Conrail or if it started in the Reading and Northern days. Okay, good yeah. answer because I'm doing it. So <laughs> this salt was this salt was bound for Point South. This salt was just moving was just moving through the area. Gotcha. Um, that's just some other power that was there that same day. Um, it seemed like a, like around the holidays, you, power tended to congregate. Yep, at Pittston there. Interesting. That seems like a lot of power for Pittston, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it sure is. Now, this is 1994, uh, Christmas of 94. So at this time, uh, the through freights were done and everything was like a glorified road local. So these trains probably all terminated. Uh, so there was no CGAL even at that time? No, at this time it was, uh, I, I forget what the numbers were. TJ20 or something like that, uh, right? 
PJ 40 was the eastbound out of Pittston. And then I think it was AL 41 coming west out of Allentown. Yeah. And then uh, it might have been PJ 44 going west to Corning and uh, CG something coming east to Pittston. Yeah. So all of this power prize is terminated here on those road locals. Wow. Uh, but there's a pretty good variety of power here. Uh, in early in 95, uh, from what I understand, early in 95, that's when uh, Conrail kind of uh, started assigning a lot of the power, like local power on a regional basis. So after the spring of 95, for the most part, most of what we saw in Pittston was like 6900 series SD40-2Es and then um, like 7880 series Jeep 38s yep. that were kind of assigned regionally to the area. I see a lot of pictures with C30-7As on them too. Yeah, in the, in the 80s and in the early 90s, yeah. Yeah, they were pretty common. Uh, the way Big Mike said, because uh, I was asking him about that, uh, he said that those C30s kind of tended to make a circle. Um, Pittston, uh, out to Buffalo, over to Albany, down to Allentown, and then up to Pittston again. Well, it's interesting that on the on the Boston line, we saw C thirty seven so frequently we we were sick of them. That's all we saw. I mean, we saw you know sets of four of them just all the time, yeah. and uh, of course we miss them now. You know what I mean? But boy, that's all we saw, and we were just bored with them. Yeah, and that was a it was a pretty good mix of everything in uh, in, in Pittston. At least I can't believe there's this big. Uh, Dash 840C here in Pittston Yard. That's that's quite a quite a power set there. Yeah, yeah. The 6049 was uh, was it wrecked out in Ohio? I think it was involved in. I think it was 97 or 98. Uh, Effingham might have been. I know it was a like a mail train rear-ended another train at uh, 50 mile an hour, and oh. and and that was one of the units. So wow, obviously not the lead unit. <laughs> Well, this was before it happened. Um, regarding Pittston, I, I, have, I have some more shots if you want to see them. Let's, let's take a look at it because, um, you know, I, I'm modeling Pittston. I'm posting pictures of stuff I'm modeling in and around that area. And uh, I've, I've posted very, very little uh, of the prototype shots yet. And, um, you know, anything that you, that you know about it, um, I think would be interesting. Yeah. So um, here's one of my modeling shots. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if we could. Uh, I don't know if we could see that roof of that sand house any better here. That's kind of tough to tell. Yep. But um, this is uh, Labor Day '94, and uh, this was one of the days me and my dad rode the PJ10. Uh, my mom's cousin was Davy Hergen, who uh, started on the Lehigh Valley, and I think '68. And um, retired from NS in the, I think, early 2000s. But he was the conductor on PJ10 this day, and he invited us to come ride along. Uh, so that, yeah. that was our power that day, was the 3202 and the 7705. Um, and this was in the morning there when we were getting, uh, getting the power together. Uh, the engineer was a Lackawanna, uh, Lackawanna engineer originally. Um, the conductor was my mom's cousin, Dave Hergen, who was Lehigh Valley, wow. and the brake was uh, C&J. So it was, 
it was kind of interesting hearing the banter between them. Even even this long after Conrail uh, was formed, there was still little jabs at each other over their former employers. <laughs> it would never end. No. Let me let me ask you a question. What color is that sand tower? I I consider it flat black with like uh, rust on it. You know, with that dark rust okay. here and there. Like the, like the previous photo you showed, I thought it was flat black. I look at this photo and I think, oh my God, is it gray? Is it silver? Yeah. Like, what no, is it? <laughs> it's, it's that kind of, that kind of shiny, you know, that, you know, the way uh, black kind of gets a little sheen to it yeah. sometimes. And, and then, you know, like surface rust, that dark surface rust. Yep. Any uh, idea what the blue sign says on the big building? Let's see if we can zoom in. Nope. <laughs> we'll never see that. We'll never see that. But it does give you a good look at the light, uh, these light fixtures that uh, used to be there. Huh. Um, and then the pipeline there, too, that, that came out from the pump house. So what would the little platform be for, Tony? That, that would be for just servicing units. Like I said, uh, on like F units, the sanders are high up on the side of the car body. So you, you, you couldn't put sand in an F unit standing on the ground. You'd have to be standing on a platform like that. Put oh, I see. So you think that's just a, a, a relic of LV days? Yeah. Yeah, because it, it was definitely there. Uh, it was definitely there at least in the late 50s, I know, uh, just from seeing photos, that little platform. Huh. And there, was, there was one on each side of the tracks. So. Right. So you never saw anybody actually using it for anything. No, I never saw them servicing power there. I mean, um, I know in the when Reading and Northern took over, I, I know they were able to add water and add oil to engines there. Yep. Um, but uh, they Reading and Northern stopped using this facility very quickly. So Reading and Northern would, would call a fuel truck or something? Is that how they normally did it? Yeah, we, we'd always have... Uh, uh, fuel truck come one 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 day a week and fuel all the engines. Usually, most of the engines could uh, run a week on a fuel a full tank of fuel. Really? Yeah, the ones that couldn't were um, the pups, uh, the SW8s. Right. Uh, for a while there, on the weekend, on I think it was Fridays, we were actually it was the whole week we were using them in Pittston. Uh, there, there was kind of a power shortage and we didn't have enough six axles. To go around so there, there was sw8s um stationed at pittston every now and then and one of them usually wouldn't make it the full week before it ran out of fuel and uh and i know that because i ran out of fuel in them a few times out in scranton <laughs> well what is it like 1500 gallons maybe i don't know they just have a sight glass on them they don't have a gauge and uh <laughs> you know when i was a young engineer I wasn't always very thorough in checking the sight glasses. I mean, you just you just never, you know, they they fueled the engine so regularly. You never, I don't know. Right. I never thought that we'd run out of fuel. Uh, Tony, my first car was like that. It didn't have a gauge either, so oh, really? I would just look in the pipe with a flashlight, and if I could see gasoline, I figure I'm good. Yeah, <laughs> that got yeah, old, well, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, I never had to look inside the the fuel tank on them, but. Uh, but yeah, so uh, outside of the switchers, everything could make it a full week. Gotcha. Um, and as far as adding lube oil for water, we we did that ourselves. We had a we had a hose hook up at at uh, the 
you know, the Cox and Tower where, where the office was moved to. And then uh, when it came to lube oil, we had five-gallon buckets that we could add ourselves, lube oil. And then um, uh, the only thing we didn't have was sand, um, which most of the year an engine, you, you could make it for its full 92 days at Pittston, which is the sand it came up with. Uh, when you couldn't, it was in the fall. You'd burn, right. through, you'd burn through that sand pretty quick in the fall. And then uh, that's when you really had issues uh, getting out to Scranton there with, with hmm. no sand in the engine in the fall. Uh, that's a pretty steep grade. It right. goes up in steps to Scranton, but the steps are, you know, when you're holding on to 20 or 25 loads, uh, it'll really drag you down going up there. Well, I think you were telling me that during my era, they would sometimes use the mountain the mountain pushers to assist the local up the hill. Yeah, the um, and I heard that from uh, uh, Jimmy Cocolan, who was the Taylor Yardmaster. Yep. And yeah, he told me that himself that uh, that sometimes uh, the Kaiser Valley jobs tonnage would be that much that they wouldn't need that helper to get out there. I've I've actually replicated that grade uh, pretty pretty faithfully and. Um, I've had the same problem. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that's, but that's a, realistic operations. That's good. Well, I think that's a good thing. You know, I'm going to fool around with, uh, with some, I'm going to try consisting a helper with the, with the main units and see if I can get it up the hill without, uh, you know, streamlining something. It's, uh, it's, it's funny. It's just kind of a little, it brought back a little memory. Uh, when you're going through the town of Old Forge up there, you know, You'd, yep. be in run, you'd be in run eight crawling up. That's where one of the grades is crawling up the grade at about six or seven mile an hour. And, like where uh, the old uh, EL station is that area. Yeah. Right around there. Yeah. Yeah. We'd be crawling up there wide open. And uh, there was a guy there who lived there who had, um, he had farm animals. He had a donkey, he had chickens, he had a horse and uh and the donkey would just go nuts when we'd go by there. I mean, the donkey would be carrying. <laughs> and then, Unbelievable. Uh, and then, you know, I, everyone loves, you know, seeing a, seeing a donkey or a horse or whatever. So I started bringing in treats for it and snacks. And I started throwing it. I started throwing donuts to the donkey. <laughs> Maybe so, that's why he went nuts. So um, the guy who owned them, his, his uh, son-in-law was in the track department. And then we started noticing that the donkey was gone. And I'm like, where, you know, where'd the donkey go? The chickens were still there, but the donkeys were gone. And, uh, and I asked the guy's son-in-law, what happened to the donkey? And he said the donkey died, that he, he, he told me the donkey was diabetic. So I don't know if I had a hand kill that donkey. I was just going to say that, but I thought, no, that can't be the... <laughs> Oh my God. Oh, that's what he told me. And I, I never pushed the subject. I just oh kinda... boy. All right. What else you got here, Tony? All right. Let's, let's look through some more of these photos. Uh, that's just a close up of, uh, you get a better look at the platform there. Um, and, uh, you know, just that cinder block uh, sand house in the back. You know, I don't know if I have this particular shot. You might need to send me that one, please. I could do that. Yep. Wow. Yeah, this is this was actually uh, in 1994. I was 12 years old, and this is where I learned how to MU power right here at 12 years old. Jeez. Uh, the, the power wasn't MU, so they had to put them together. And the brakeman showed me how to hook up MU hoses and turn the air in between them. 
So is this just a regular GP40 or is this a dash two? No, this is a regular one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So uh there's a M dash two. Yeah, this this one came out of Hornell. Um that's uh that's out my mom. Hornell, not M not Mountaintop? No, and I know that for a fact because wow. um You'd have to dig through magazines, but I've seen photos of this train coming through Sare uh, with this set of power and and everything. So I do know that this came down came down from Hornell. So is it on its way to Allentown or something? Yep. Huh. Yeah. So uh, this was how the day started. This was the road train that came down from Corning. Uh, their first order of business was to pull the road power off and swing it over to the engine terminal. Um, that's Davey Hergen, the conductor on the hind steps there. Are those passenger cars that I saw in the distance? Yeah, those those were out of Hornell too. Those were Mark uh, uh, Mark passenger cars. Wow. Um, so yeah, we uh, pulled the road power off and uh, swung the road power into the engine terminal. It's a switchback to kind of get over into that engine terminal. Right. Um. This was a shot I took. Those other ones uh, were the shots my dad took. This one's a little blurrier. I only had a point and shoot. Yep. Um, but there's the road power, the 6584, the 6203, and then um, uh, that SP unit out of Hornell. Uh, What's with the CSX <laughs> unit? Well, that I, I'm not sure. I think that just came up on one of the road freights, um, but they did use that on the local because – I don't know. Did I send you the paperwork from this day? I, I have the cruise paperwork. And um, in the cruise paperwork, it says that that engine is shot because uh, they bent the steps up at Technoglass on it. But that rings a bell, actually. Yeah, so that, that engine was used to go up to Technoglass a day or two before. <laughs> and then they, the crew ruined the steps on it. But um, yeah, there's there they put it in the tie-up track. I think that was number two tie-up. And you can see the box car behind yep. it yep. that I believe was used for sand, but uh, you got me questioning that now. <laughs> hmm. There's another there. You can see the bent step on it. Oh yes. Yeah. The um, all the photo of that later of the uh, of how they bent the step. Okay. Uh, but yeah, that uh, that engine was shopped, and then you can see there's a, a Mark E8 out of there. I, I'm not sure. I, I think they were going to MK, this Mark E8, and then there's a, like a Jeep, some kind of Jeep behind it. Uh, but they were there that day, too. Huh. This is uh, riding around, riding around on the yard power. <laughs> I, it, it was it was just, a, you know, this is one of those days where as a 12 year old, you know, it, it's just it's just. You were hooked, you know. Oh, and, I can uh, see that. I, I think on a subconscious level, it, it really pulled me into the railroad uh, yep. to getting a job at the railroad. Uh, there we are, uh, pulling those mark coaches off and putting the mark coaches in the tie-up tracks too. And then um, I don't know many shots of it, but um, we spent a good maybe two or three hours kicking cars uh, all. Uh, the train from Allentown and the train from uh, Corning. Um, we sorted all that stuff out. And these guys, man, they let the cars fly. They would, I mean, you, the cars would go sailing off down in the Riverside yard uh, where they kick them. And then 
They'd also, uh, some of the cars, uh, the cars that were destined for the Pocono Northeast and for the Delaware Lackawanna, those cars were uh, to be set up in the OX yard and they kicked them in the OX yard. But yeah, these guys would really let the cars go. It was, it was awesome to see. Um, at this point, we finished doing that. And this is our train for Technoglass right here. Okay. Uh, set seven cars to go up to Technoglass. And that's all uh, sand? Sand. And then there was uh, there was something else that they got too. I don't know if it was bauxite or something. It kind of uh, looked like it, it looked like broken glass. Um, calm. No, nah, it wasn't recycled calm. glass. Maybe recycled glass. Uh, I don't know, but they but they got Tekken Glass got that too. Okay. Inbound. Uh, uh, so we're pulling up to the uh, the office there, and we're going to cut off the lead unit that Jeep Forty, and then we're just going to go up to Tekken Glass with the seventy seven oh five. Um, that's just another shot of uh, the tie-up tracks there. The um, the cars on the left, that is stuff to go back up to Corning. That I guess the next day the cor uh, the Corning bound freight would take up there. Tony, I'm gonna I'm gonna call that audible here. I I don't feel like we're done. Um, okay. I think I want to make this a two-parter just for uploading purposes and and what have you. So. Um, I'm going to say to folks, stand by. We're going, to, we're going to close out this one, and then we're going to resume with a part two of the podcast for the very first time. So hang in there.